Hi everybody, this is Zhang, founder of Nhà Zhang Yoga, a community that focuses on yoga, wellness, and other activities that help unite body, mind, and spirit. Our mission is to bring similar-minded people together so that we can lift up each other, support each other, and make miracles happen. Today is Sunday, September 26, 2021, and I'm quite Uh, glad to know and hopefully it will be true uh, that um, uh, the lockdown will be uh, lift up soon in Saigon and uh, we will be able to go out and enjoy the outdoors hopefully we will be coming to a new normality with um, as much peace and happiness as possible so yeah so today um, I'm gonna read another chapter, the next chapter of the book, A Learning True Love by Sister Chen Kong. Let's get started. Chapter 6, Autumn Moon In January 1964, Thầy Nhất Hạnh submitted a three-point proposal to the Executive Council of the Unified Buddhist Church, UBC, in Vietnam. First, the church should publicly call for cessation of hostilities in Vietnam. Thầy believed that if the Buddhist church would call for peace immediately, both warring parties would listen as the prestige of the newly formed UBC was high following the fall of the Ziet regime. Second, the church should help build an institute for the studies and practice of Buddhism to train the country's leaders to practice the tolerant, open-minded spirit taught by the Buddha and sorely needed by the nation. Thầy wished to establish a kind of university to train leaders in the practice of engaged Buddhism. His vision was based on the experiences of one of the wisest and most peaceful periods in Vietnamese history, the 11th to 14th centuries, a period of peace, stability, tolerance, and a high level of civilization. When everyone in the royal family and their staffs studied Buddhism, Confucianism, and Taoism at Quốc Tử Giám School and served the people well. When there were invasions by China or squabbles with neighbors, the country's leadership directed the nation to be strong and firm when needed and generous peacemakers after the victory. Thầy told the UBC that we needed a university not unduly influenced by French or American education, one that would not just produce scholars but would train the leaders of the country how to listen to people and care for their needs without being corrupted by wealth or fame. Third, the church should develop a center for training social workers to help bring about nonviolent social change based on the Buddha's teachings. Thay's idea was to go beyond such traditional notions of charity as giving food, medicine, and money to the poor. 
by supporting the peasants in their efforts to improve the quality of their lives. He wanted to teach social work and rural development as the work of personal and social transformation. Workers would not consider themselves helpers, nor the peasants as people being helped. They would cultivate the understanding that they and the poor peasants were partners in a common task. The church elders offered support only for the Buddhist institute. Calling Tai an unrealistic poet, they said that without outside financial support, his programs for social change could not be realized, and that such support would not be forthcoming as long as Vietnam was caught in a war between the free world and communism. They added that the Buddhists in Sri Lanka, Thailand, and Burma were too poor to help and they could imagine no way that work for peace and social change could succeed on such a large scale without adequate funding. Thay responded, The Buddha taught us to be lambs unto ourselves. We don't need Sri Lankan, Thai or Burmese money or the support of the communists or anti-communists. We only need to stand up and be lambs to, unto ourselves. But the elders could not understand. I believe that if Thay's proposals had received the UBC support at that time, we Vietnamese might have been able to solve many of our problems without such an escalation of the war, and our country could, would have suffered much less. In early 1964, the people's admiration of the Buddhist leadership was high, and the number of people willing to volunteer or give financial support to such projects was great. Hundreds of workers in the social welfare branch of the UBC would have been ready to join such a campaign for social change. The nationalists were still relatively strong and had not yet invited so many foreign troops into Vietnam. If peace negotiations could have started at that time, the accords would have been more balanced between North and South, and the North would not have been able to swallow the South the way it did 11 years later. Throughout Vietnamese history, every time there has been a fight between two factions of our people, the one that received the support of foreign troops had lo has lost. We use expressions like carrying snakes to buy our own chickens or rước voi đầy mà inviting elephants to crush our ancestral tombs. The situation of my brother-in-law, Bùi Thanh Thuy, demonstrates the confusion and division that existed in our society at that time. He was an army captain and the chief of the Zarai district administration in 1964, greatly admired by the local people. Every time the guerrillas came back from the jungle, where their whereabouts were reported to him by local peasants, and he could keep the peace. But after the U.S. troops arrived,
he began to receive less and less information. Until 1966, he was killed in an attack. The peasants apparently lost trust in him when they saw him working with uh, the American soldiers. Thay's idealism did appear to university students and many volunteered to help with uh, all three of his projects. Thay set up an institute of higher Buddhist studies and he invited many great Vietnamese scholars to teach. He asked the venerable Thay Chin Thu to be president, Chik Sum to be general secretary, and his disciple Thay Thanh Vân to be head of the office. Students volunteered by the dozens because of the wonderful presence of Thay Nhất Hạnh, Chik Sum, and Thay Thanh Vân. With Thay's help, Chik Sum and Thay Thanh Vân prepared the curriculum for a variety of programs leading to bachelor's, master's, and PhD degrees in Buddhist studies. The institute opened in February 1964, and in May, Thay Nhất Hạnh invited Thay Minh Châu to be vice president, Thay Thiện An to be dean of arts and human sciences, and Thay Mạn Giác to be dean of Buddhist studies. And he asked the three of them who returned from India and Japan when the Institute of Higher Buddhist Studies was already functioning well to be on the faculty. Young volunteers staffed the office and the program was fully underway in just 14 months. The institute was then renamed the Vat Haik University. In September 1965, the School of Youth for Social Service was founded as a program of Van Haik University. Although the groundwork for the SYSS began the week they returned to Saigon. In February 1964, he set up one pioneer development village in Gouging on the outskirts of Saigon. I was still in France and he wrote to me, Please come back right away. If you want to work for social change in the ways we spoke about, this is the time. Many people want to help, but you are the one reason who can organize this program and make it work. My thesis, Freshwater Orgy of Vietnam, was submitted to the University of Paris and accepted with honors on June 16th 1964, I was offered a job in the Museum of National History in Paris and a scholarship to continue my research, but I could think of nothing except going home to help Thay establish a school for training Buddhist social workers. I returned to Vietnam on June 18th. When I arrived, the first pioneer village had been underway for four months. It was partially staffed and the work of meeting the villagers and eliciting their trust was already well underway. To inspire me, Thay had exaggerated that and said that I was the only person who could organize the social work. But Thay Dongbon and other friends had already done a beautiful job getting things started. Together with the villagers, they had built a three-room schoolhouse and were using one of the rooms as a medical center. 
I invited friends to contribute tables and benches for the classrooms, and I organized a group of teachers. I also found several young physicians who gathered supplies for the medical center. In addition to helping in Goking Village, I was asked by Tay to start a second pioneer village, and with the help of a friend, I chose to do it in Tao Dien. To reach Tao Dien, we had to walk and ride eight kilometers among muddy dikes, and on the paths between rice paddies. When we got there, the mud was already caked to our feet and our bicycles. Altogether, we were about thirty persons working in the two villages, including Thay Dongbon and many of the friends who had worked in the slums of Saigon. Although the villagers were just a few kilometers from Saigon, life there seemed centuries behind. Every week, people died from preventable diseases. There were no toilets, no knowledge of science or hygiene, and the defecation of the sick quickly spread bacteria to others. Our goal was to train young people to help peasants, establish schools and medical centers, improve sanitation, and develop agriculture and、uh, horticulture. Because I had already resumed lecturing in Saigon University, many professional people, professional people, medical doctors, agricultural engineers, and others could identify with this work, and they were inspired to join us. Although we were intellectuals in the countryside, we dressed and behaved exactly like the peasants. One month after my return, we organized a meeting with the peasants of Taodian Village to encourage them to set up a school. We had met already with the officer in Saigon responsible for that district, and he had told us that it would not be possible for the government to build a schoolhouse for just seventy-seven children. The minimum number needed to receive government funding was two hundred. So we held a meeting with the villagers and began by saying, "You cannot read or write. Your children are also illiterate, and now your grandchildren have no school. We must do something about it. The government will not build you a school, so let us build one together." To our great happiness, they agreed. One old man donated two thousand palm leaves for the roof. Another gave some bamboo ticket, and many others offered the labor. In a few weeks, we completed the first school in Taodian Village. In other villages, the government had to hire guards to protect the schools from vandalism. But in Goking and Taodian, where the villagers built their own schools, the villagers themselves took great pride in caring for the school and protecting it. This work was so much easier than in the Guoctang slum. People here were so cooperative. I was surely inspired. Real change seemed to be coming. 
we did our best to improve the quality of health care. Most villagers thought that when a child had a high fever, it was because evil spirits wanted to take the child away. We did not challenge that belief. In fact, we joined in prayers to the spirits not to take the child. But we also persuaded the villagers to give the child medicine. When a number of children felt better after taking medicine, the people came to accept our suggestions. Our team members were humble, always acting like sons and daughters of the village. So when we helped the villagers overcome serious diseases, it was especially impressive. Slowly, with the help of the local community, we were able to set up a medical center. We also helped improve the farming and horticulture. Villagers believed that evil spirits killed their livestock. So we worked to introduce the vaccination of animals. We also taught people to grow mushrooms in wet, rotting straw. With only two bundles of straw, we were able to grow 30 pounds of straw mushrooms every 10 days. It reminded me of the days when we, 13 young cedars of the temple, studied with Thay Nhat Hạnh outside of Saigon. There was a joy and camaraderie among the young social workers that sustained us, even in the face of adversity. I was especially impressed by the work of Nhat Chi, a young monk from Quang Nam. Brother Chi had been ordained a novice in 1956 by Thay Nhat Hạnh in the Bảo Lộc Temple in the Highlands, and he was Thay's youngest disciple. As an uh, SYSS student and an excellent social worker, he was greatly appreciated by the peasants in both pioneer villages, Kauking and Thao Dien. Even today, I can see so clearly Brother Chi wearing his own monk's robe and stooping over little Ko, whom he cared for like a son. Chi's face was so composed and kind. I also remember him chairing the village meetings with such ease, persuading the better-off villagers to share their resources with those less well-off. I remember the way he helped convince the villagers to build a school and then dig a well. The children in Taodian village had to go out fishing and crabbing to help feed their families, or they had to watch their younger siblings so their parents could work. Most of the children had never seen the inside of a classroom until Brother Chi appeared. His class in Taodian reminded me of the class I had started in the Kuoktang slum, where the children loved the chance to attend school. Many of the children in Taodian needed to bring their younger brothers and sisters to class, and until the villagers organized child care for the little ones, the classroom was a real scene. I remember the day I joined Brother Chi's first grade class. The pupils were 12 and 13 years old, and many brought their infant brothers and sisters to class with them. Chi clapped his hands loudly and said, Please be quiet now, children. Look at the words I have written on the blackboard. 
I will read them, and then you'll repeat after me. The class grew quiet, except for the muffled sounds of one squirming youngster. Gu was doing his best to keep his younger brother on his lap, so he would not crawl on the dam's dirt floor. He looked intently at the board and held his brother tightly, but his baby brother burst out crying. Ku tried to cover his mouth, but it was of no use, and he had to carry him out of the classroom. The quiet did not last long. A moment later, Siu cried out, "Ba, your sister just shit on the floor. It stings." Ba had been so absorbed in the lesson that she hadn't noticed her taller sister squatting. The lesson came to a halt as Ba cleaned the floor. Chi looked at me helplessly and said, "We must find a way to care for the little ones during school hours. Perhaps the grandparents can help." That year, 1964. Chi organized an autumn moon festival for the children of Tao Dian. Can you believe it? He said to me. More than three hundred families, and not one of the children has ever celebrated the autumn moon festival. A month before the festival, he pointed to the full moon and told the children the stories of Guoi. Who had traveled to the moon, and King Zhuang Minghuang, who dreamed he was welcomed by many goddesses in the moon. He described to the children how autumn looks in a place with four seasons, transporting them with his storytelling and sharing with them the happiness of children who live in peace. Then he said, "Our country is not at peace." But your district is relatively secure, so I want to organize a moon festival for you. She asked me to gather donations from the villagers to buy colored paper for lanterns. Then he gave his oldest pupils tasks like rowing across the river to Bingfu Village to get some bamboo, palm stems. Could have been used to make simple pyramid-shaped lanterns, but bamboo was needed if we wanted to make frames for beautiful star-shaped lanterns. I remember how Tam Tai from nearby Gouging showed the children how to make the lanterns. He was preparing the moon festival for the children in his village too. The children from both villages could hardly wait for the festival day to arrive. We told them to watch the moon each night, and as soon as it was full, that would be the festival day. A few days before the eighth month, full moon, we did not know if we would be able to complete the lanterns. There were only twenty left to make, but we had run out of paper and money too. New suggested we trim the frames of the star lanterns to have extra paper, and Chuang suggested that the last lanterns be pyramid-shaped, since they use less paper. In the end, every child had a lantern. 
Tâm Thái arranged for the musicians from Gouking to come to, at 3 in the afternoon to begin the festivities and a group of students from Saigon to bring presents for the children. But at 1 o'clock, Brother Chi began to look worried. He said to me, I'm afraid the students from Saigon won't make it and we won't have enough presents for all the children. By two o'clock, crowds of students with two gifts each arrived and the musicians came soon after that. Though we held the festival in the largest garden of the village, it was absolutely packed with students and villagers. Everyone was delighted to watch the children do a boat rowing dance accompanied by the Goking musicians. A farmer named Bai Ro, who was quite shy, played traditional songs on the flute. Our pharmacist, Tao, was nominated to be the spokesperson for the event. Thuy Nguyen and Tang were in charge of numbering the gifts and helped each child pick a number out of the basket. It was dusk when the last gift was given and the students prepared to return home. Other friends met the musicians on the main road to take them back to Gouking, where Tâm Thái would have the children of his village light lanterns for their procession. Chi and I stayed behind in Tao Dien, as did a fewer our f- other friends. Evening shadows crept over the garden, and I was thinking about the village farmers who never had the leisure just to gaze at the autumn moon and notice that it's brighter and sweeter than all of the other full moons. Suddenly there was a sound by the gate and a dozen youngsters carrying red, blue and yellow lanterns strolled forward singing, Oh moon festival night, we carry our lanterns together and we sing and dance. In the distance, another group of children walked with their lanterns, singing the same song. Chi led another group at the edge of the village, and he looked at the same age as the children. The sound of singing filled in the air, and the moon peeked over the coconut trees, full, round, and bright. My heart stirred. A simple pleasure like celebrating the Autumn Moon Festival was something all children should know. But without Brother Chi, none of these children would have. As Uncle Hai, the poor farmer stroking his white beard, said, What joys there are for children! In all my days, I have never seen the children enjoy themselves so much. Three years later, in 1967, Brother Chi and seven other students were abducted from Bingfu village. And to this day, we do not know what happened. He had returned to the School of Youth for Social Service to study for another two years and was working in Bingfu when eight social workers were abducted. If I hadn't returned that night to Saigon to visit my mother, I would have shared his fate. If he died that night, I would have died with him.
Dying on the path of social service is not unusual. Still, my two greatest sorrows are the loss of sister Nyachi Mai and the loss of brother Chi. Mai made the choice to immolate herself as a prayer for peace, but brother Chi wanted to live simply and help build a new society based on love and understanding. He tried to help others lead a better life. His work had barely begun when he disappeared. My dear brother is gone, but his spirit lives on in the heart and in the hearts of so many of his friends who continue his work. From time to time, I still say hello to him when I see myself behaving the way he did. It seems that a part of him has been reborn in me. Thank you.